Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Kellen, I'm excited about today's episode because I feel like it's going to help clear up some ideas that I think a lot of people have that can sometimes be misconceptions in collapse. It's not to say that we have all of the answers or that everything's going to be super clear cut in this episode, but we are going to try and discuss some topics that I think can be overstated or misconstrued. So that'll make more sense as we get into the episode and talk about those later on. But before we get to those, I think just to introduce the episode, it's not new to anyone paying attention to learn that less people own things like homes and cars than have in the past and that we're trending negatively. In this episode, the purpose is we're going to talk about how ownership has changed over the last several decades, where that trend is going and what the future could look like. But before we dive into that side of things, I did think it would be interesting to talk about a sort of famous prediction for the future that has ruffled a lot of feathers over the last seven years. And this is one of those sort of controversial topics. So you've likely heard of something called the Great Reset. And even more famously, the line, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That's a line that we've used on the podcast before referencing this specific prediction. Kellen, I'm curious if you, when I said that the first time, had any idea what that was from what it meant, what it was all about. No, I didn't. I didn't have any idea where that came from. It's funny, though, when you mentioned the Great Reset, because at one point I was with a group of friends 
Um, it was early on in the podcast and I had told them about the podcast and told them about the general idea of collapse and everything that I was learning. And one of them jumped in and said like, oh, so you're one of those like great reset guys. And I, at the time, didn't know anything about it and didn't know how to respond to that. Hopefully you just said no. I just said, I don't know. Perfect. I think that's a good answer because you didn't. Well, I want to talk about this because I think it does have some implications for the future. I think this will set a good tone for the episode. And the first thing to point out with this is that there's a lot of really intense theories floating around out there. And your friend or your group of friends who brought this up is probably likely familiar with those theories. And a lot of them go too far into the conspiracy side. I am not going to take a hard stance on the Great Reset, on whether it's good or bad or evil or whatever. But I do think it's important to make sure that we have the facts when we're discussing this. And if you are somebody, uh, you the listener, who has maybe heard things about the Great Reset but hasn't done any research into it really, just to make sure that you're not falling into things that may not be true and representing them in a way that could spread those falsehoods. So there's often sort of very right-wing New World Order type conspiracies that come out of this. And this is where it comes from. So the Great Reset is an initiative that comes from the WEF. The WEF is the World Economic Forum who has as its mission to improve the state of the world and to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. It's a group of 2,500 individuals, supposedly accountable to all parts of society, carefully blending and balancing the best of many kinds of organizations from both the public and private sectors, international organizations, and academic institutions. Basically, they get together to discuss the future and how they believe they can make the world a better place. In 2021, they announced an initiative called the Great Reset. Basically, they claimed that the pandemic gave us a sort of special opportunity to start over. I'm going to read right from the Great Reset website what the opportunity they say is. They say, as we enter a unique window of opportunity to shape the recovery, this initiative will offer insights to help inform all those determining the future state of global relations. The direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of a global commons. Drawing from the vision and vast expertise of the leaders engaged across the forum's communities, the Great Reset Initiative has a set of dimensions to build a new social contract that honors the dignity of every human being. Sounds vague. Yeah, it's pretty vague. Basically, the stated aim is to be able to rebuild from the pandemic in a more sustainable way. Now, on the surface, that sounds great, right? Well, as part of the meeting, they discussed and released some of what they expected the future to be like in 2030. There's a video out there you can watch. We'll link to it here. It's like a one-minute video in which they just put together a list of predictions that groups or people from the forum made about the world 2030. So there were items such as the U.S. won't be the leading global superpower. We won't transplant organs. We'll print new ones instead. And a billion people will be displaced by climate change. Most famously, one of the predictions also was, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. So a lot of people sort of claim that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy is like the stated mission of the Great Reset. And this was a misconception that I had because I'd heard it so often from so many different people that I just assumed that it was true because I hadn't done my own research on it. But I do think it's important to note 
they have not stated that as their mission. It's not their goal for the future to make sure that nobody owns anything and that they're telling us we're going to be happy about it. Where that comes from, so it's an article written by one of the members of the WEF. Her name's Ida Aachen, who is a leftist politician in Denmark. And again, it's important to maybe keep that in mind because most of the conspiracy theories come from the right, kind of claiming that the left is shooting for like a communist new world order revolution. So Ida's article detailed a scenario of what the world could be like in 2030 if technology continued the way it's going. I'm going to do something we don't do often here. I'm going to read from Wikipedia because I think they did a good job of summarizing this. It says, by the scenario's 2030 endpoint, anything that had once been a product was now a freely available service, obviating any need for personal ownership of goods or real estate. The article, originally titled, Welcome to 2030, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better, has been criticized as portraying an unrealistic utopia at the cost of privacy and contained a clear logical error where she uses the phrase, my bike, after explaining that ownership does not even exist in 2030. In response, Aachen added an author's note in which she said that the article merely represented a potential future scenario rather than any personal utopia of her own, and that it was intended to start a discussion about some of the pros and cons of the current technological development. She then later renamed the article to Here's How Life Could Change in My City by the Year 2030. And I think it'll be good for you to share some clarification there on on the thoughts and ideas around this because at one point Corey, you and i had an episode early on in the podcast where we talked about trading our independence for convenience and in part of that episode we talked about how everything is kind of moving toward a subscription model you know businesses if they wanted to purchase a software used to have to have their own servers and put a lot of upfront cost into it now everything's cloud-based and you just subscribe and we used to all have vhs tapes and then later dvds and now we just subscribe to these streaming services and we talked about a lot of different examples there where we've moved in large part as a society away from ownership to more of a subscription model of things yeah absolutely and and that is what she's claiming that she's saying she's saying i'm looking at what the technology is doing and the direction that we're headed I'm not claiming that this is what I want for the future. This isn't my personal utopia. This is my prediction for 2030, is that the way the technology is headed, ownership of things will become less and less. You will rent things and that the attitude around it will be that it will make you happy. And as you just mentioned, I mean, there are certainly pros to this type of idea, right? It is nice that a business can spend $100 a month on a software that might cost them $100,000 to set up all on their own. Or it's nice that I can have access to thousands of movies or shows instead of having to go buy each one that I want to watch individually. It's nice that I can pay Spotify eight bucks a month or whatever it is instead of paying iTunes for each song to own. So there are things about it that are nice. And I think that's what she is claiming she's saying. I just want to talk about the pros and the cons of what this future looks like, because that's where we're headed. But the the sort of conspiracy theory behind it all of a sudden is the stated mission of this organization is to make sure that we all own nothing and that we're happy about it. And of course, you know, these people are going to be the ones that own everything and they will rent it back to us. Now, I really want to make sure that I'm also 
making it clear, I'm not defending the WEF or the Great Reset here. I'm not stating that their mission or their intent is pure. I don't know. I do think it's important to discuss who they are. There's an article done by the Transnational Institute that investigated who actually makes up the WEF and if they're as diverse a representation of the world as they claim that they are. And here's some of the numbers. The WEF is 83% men, and 75% of those involved live in either the U.S. or Europe. So there's a clear sort of Western representation there, just involving two continents out of the seven. (laughs) Antarctica is severely misrepresented. (laughs) But uh, of the 24 board members, 16 are from North America or Europe, and there are none representing Africa. Only one of the board members represents civil society, the Red Cross, and there are none representing trade unions, public sector organizations, human rights groups, peasant or indigenous organizations, students, or youth. Its year-round membership is made up exclusively of a thousand of the world's biggest multinational corporations, most with more than U.S. $5 billion in turnover. And among those billionaires include people like the chairman of Nestle, who views the human right to water as extreme and has a lot of other moral beliefs or amoral beliefs. The article also listed several other billionaire members who have criminal and unethical pasts. Basically, we're talking about sort of a bunch of corporate billionaires all meeting up together to decide what the future is going to look like. So, I mean, yeah, it's natural that the question comes up like, do they have our best interest at heart? Do they actually have any sway as a group in what the future even looks like? And the answer is I I don't know. Maybe there is some truth to the conspiracy. Maybe they are trying to guide us toward a future where they own everything. On an individual level, I'm sure they'd love that. On a group level, are they able to make that happen? Are they trying to make that happen? I don't know. But the important part is to me, whether for better or worse, they view the future as being one in which we will likely own less and rent everything. And so again, the purpose of this episode is then to discuss what does that future sort of look like and what is the evidence that we're headed in that direction. So going back to that conversation a long time ago when I was with friends and one said, oh, are you one of those great reset people? If I were to say yes, that would have indicated I'm somebody who believes there's all of these conspiring, you know, corporate, overlords who want to kind of take control of the world and put us in this like dystopian society where we don't get to own anything. Is that, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. I think if somebody says, are you one of those great reset people? They're probably saying, are you one of those people that talks nonstop about the new world order and that they're trying to, to take over the world basically. And look, I think you can simultaneously shut down the conspiracy theories and recognize that that's just the natural shift that we're headed towards. It's what capitalism does. It doesn't mean that there are individual people who sit behind a desk and in, you know, in dark corners and whisper about their plans to take over the world and create a new world order. It's simply that capitalism puts the wealth into the hands of the few and that as they gather more wealth, they are given more power to create further wealth shifts. And as we're about to discuss, those shifts in wealth are happening rapidly and their pace is growing. I think individual billionaires want 
to make more money, right? And so they will take the actions that will make that happen. And the result of many billionaires doing that is that we will own nothing and we will be happy. Except for, I don't know if we'll be happy. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe some people will still own a few things. I don't know. But but you get the point. The, the point is that we're trending in that direction, but we don't have to be weird about it being like a conspiracy theory. So from there, let's talk a little bit about ownership and how, you know, what's happening, what what is changing and why. I'm just going to go over a few things here just for the purpose of the length of this episode. And this might feel a little sporadic. I'm going to jump back and forth between a few different things here, but Here's some of what's going on. So you think about things like minimum wage, right? It stayed the same since 2009. From then until now, from 2009 to 2023, the median home price in the U.S. has gone from $205,000 to nearly $430,000. So more than double. Meanwhile, that minimum wage has not changed and wages have not kept up with that growth. According to the Center for Economic and Policy Research, the minimum wage would be $21.45 if it had risen in step with productivity. Those who work for minimum wage now are becoming poorer, and that's pretty apparent to see. They have way less buying power than they did before, right? This can be due to inflation in house prices, in rent prices, inflation in grocery prices. Basically, whatever budget someone who was making minimum wage 10 years ago, that same budget today does not meet near the same as it did. For the past 20 months, Wage growth has failed to keep up with with uh, rising prices. And what's interesting is inflation benefits the wealthy because, for example, the difference between a 25-cent banana and a $10 banana means nothing to them, right? It's funny, there's a line from Arrested Development in the first season where the mom, who is a very wealthy lady, gets after her son for charging his brother for a banana. But she says something like, it's a banana. What could it cost? $10? And it, it just shows that the wealthy, you know, it, the idea of that line was to show that the wealthy are really out of touch from the working class and even the middle class. You know, you tell a working class person that the price of a banana is now $10 and that's just <laughs> incredible, right? That's, that's outrageous. But to somebody who's got millions of dollars, a $10 banana, whatever, $10, $5, 25 cent, $100, you just buy the banana. But with inflation, you know, meanwhile, they'll be able to snatch up more homes and other assets and then rent them out to the rest of us, which is something that we have seen so much of during the pandemic. The ownership of homes and who owns those homes is changing. One issue with renting, I hear a lot of people defend renting, and there's so many good things about renting if you're in the right position for it, right? But one issue is that it often costs as much or more to rent somewhere than it does to just own it. You know, I currently pay less for my mortgage than I would if I was renting my home. And I think it's somewhere by almost double is what I would pay in rent for what I pay to to own it. But what sucks is that banks don't care, right? It seems counterintuitive, but the bank will tell you like, you can't afford a $1,500 mortgage, but you can pay $1,900 in rent. According to the Housing Affordability Index, we're down 29% year over year for affordability, which is the largest drop ever recorded. I mean, we threw out a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics on this podcast, but some of them still shock me. Yeah, that is a huge decrease in affordability. And that was just year over year. There was also, I don't know the exact number, but there was a large decrease the year before as well in 2021. 
Along with that, existing debt is higher than ever. So we'll do a whole separate episode on debt. But Americans have $800 billion in credit card debt, $1.75 trillion in student loans, and $1.5 trillion in auto loans. According to CNBC, personal debt increased in the third quarter of 2021 faster than any other quarter for the last 15 years. Year over year, credit card debt had jumped 15%, more than it had in over 20 years. And it's interesting because you think about how during the pandemic, people were good for a while, right? They were receiving some stimulus checks. There were some tax breaks and things like that. But now we are resorting more and more to using credit cards and getting loans. And it's sad. I've heard about a lot of people who, with inflation, are having to make up the difference because their wages haven't increased by putting it on their credit card. And I can't, I mean, I've, I've been there before where there's this stress of putting regular costs, expenditures necessary for survival onto a credit card and knowing about the predatory rates and the cycle with interest and how it's just so hard to get out of that. And that can be a very suffocating feeling. And to think that so many Americans are headed in that direction right now because there is such a lack of money in savings accounts. I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but we've talked about them before, about how so few people could put up a $400 expense right in an emergency. It's sad to think that the very thing that gave us maybe a false sense of security, which was those stimulus checks, is also one of the things contributing to all of the inflation, which now is causing so much pain. Again, the wealthy don't mind the inflation. As a matter of fact, it works to their benefit in a lot of ways. When it comes to renting, there is a research paper done by the Urban Institute, and it claims that they believe that the pace of renter growth will be more than double the pace of home ownership growth from 2020 to 2040 in the U.S. The research is really interesting. They get into a lot more detail about specifically who is going to be renting more, who's going to be owning homes less. So we'll link to that in the uh, in the description. But the point being, I couldn't find any research that stated that home ownership would increase. It's pretty apparent that today, millennials and Gen Z are struggling to get into homes. Now, obviously, we, we talk about homes, it's this huge expense, right? It's becoming, again, nearly impossible for so many people to get into even a starter home. But the idea of ownership applies to so many other things. Like Ida mentioned in her article, you know, she talked about the ownership of, of all sorts of things, that if there's a need for anything, it will be rented. And I sh kind of shiver to think of a future where like everything you get is from a rent-a-center, right? Rent-a-center, for example, is extremely predatory. And is that the future we're headed towards where everything is just usury? It's, it's just predatory lending? Sure, you can rent this TV for $20 a month, and after three years, you've paid four times what the, you would have paid if you just bought it new, right? And is that going to be how it is with everything? It's hard to say. I think we are seeing more and more trends towards that direction. Number one, because as people simply don't have the money to buy something right now, they do resort to, in, in an essence, renting it. If you put something on your credit card, you're renting it at an extremely high rate, right? Well, I think it's worth mentioning before you're talking about renting versus owning but even when we talk about owning and doing air quotes, like a home, we're paying a mortgage on it. And oftentimes that's like a 30-year mortgage, right? And you can say, well, it's different because you're building equity. And 
in one sense, that's true if the value of your home is appreciating. But on the other hand, they front load the interest, right? To where a very small portion of your mortgage payment initially goes to principal. And as time goes on over the course of those 30 years, it shifts more and more toward principal and away from interest. But at least initially, most of your mortgage payment is just interest. And they know that most people don't stay in a home for 30 years. And so they collect a ton of interest money and a little bit of principal is what you get to hang on to as equity in your home. But even then, if you start defaulting on your mortgage payments, do you just suddenly get to have all the equity that your home is worth, right? There's, you're kind of instead kept subservient to the bank and essentially forced to rent your home even when you feel like you're owning it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And then that's not even to mention that you never truly own the land that you live that you live on, that you've built your home on, because you will always owe taxes for it. And those taxes are always increasing. So already we are in sort of a spot where you can't truly own it all. And it makes me curious if there will be more regulation for places like Rent-A-Center or if there will be much less regulation and that will simply become the norm. People desperate to own, or I should say to have things, will pay out of pocket each month for those things rather than save up to buy them. And you know maybe saving up to buy them won't even be an option. I could see the economics of the future changing where the same TV today that might cost $600, the price simply rises to $5,000, right? Which might be the rental cost over the course of five years, basically making it so that renting it is the best option between the two, even though the better option economically would just be to sell the TVs for less. Yeah, and I think almost any uh, corporation operates under the kind of maxim the, the philosophy that you know a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and that it's better to secure that revenue now even if it's less than to secure more revenue later but regardless you know a, a, what the economics and what the pricing models for corporations ends up looking like in the example like you mentioned of a tv somebody feels like they really need a TV or I guess want a TV and they just simply can't afford whatever it costs, 
even if it's going to cost them three, four times as much to make monthly payments, that seems more bearable to break it up into those chunks up front. If they don't have the money to pay for it outright, they don't have the money for it. But I think this leads really well into the next part of this conversation, which is around feudalism or the feudal system, which it might sound like I'm saying futile. (laughs) The feudal system feels that way. (laughs) But we're talking about feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L. And this was basically the dominant social system in medieval Europe. And depending on, you know, there's a lot of different definitions and some claim it was basically the system from the 10th to the 13th century. Others have other time frames that they feel like it really fits into. But as kind of a, a simplification, like oversimplifying an explanation of it, you can just think of a pyramid and, and any sort of hierarchy where you've got a pyramid. In this case, at the top, you've got the crown, right? The monarchy. And for example, in... The years 1066 to 1087, you've got William the Conqueror who considered all of England as his own personal property, right? So basically, the monarch says, all of this is mine. The whole country is mine. They then say to the nobility, hey, I will give you land. I will give you property if you promise loyalty to me and service, right? Like whatever that might entail. The nobility turns around and then basically kind of sublets that land out and and gives titles to land and says, you know, you, you now get to work this land. This land is yours to live on, to farm on. And that just means that you have to provide military service or you have to provide like produce that you, you produce from your land or money. So that term that's used for those individuals that are given that exchange, you know, if I am a member of the nobility and I come to you, Corey, and I say, you get to have this land if you will pay me in produce or military military service or whatever, you are a vassal. And the nobility, they are vassals to the monarch. And you could have multiple layers of this, right? Oftentimes, the nobility would give land to these vassals. The vassals, it's too much land for them to work, right? So they kind of sublet it out and they sublet it out. And it's not so much the same as like renting because like I've I've given you this land and you get to pass it on to your oldest son and they pass it on to their son. But I'm promising you as I as I give you title to this land, like I will protect you. Right, I'm kind of congregating from all of my vassals the military force to be able to protect you. And that's the exchange. And in this social hierarchy, down at the very bottom, there are peasants or serfs. And the difference there is that they are not free. They, they can't leave the land. They're forced to work without pay on the land that is owned or rented by others to produce the food for themselves, but also to produce excess food as profit for their masters. Under the stricter definitions of the feudal system, that lowest class, the peasantry, isn't included. It's not part of what you would consider that system to be. 
But under this hierarchy, the majority of the population was the peasantry. So it's tough. I, I mean, I've got pages here of notes as I was reading through this, and this is my attempt to just like summarize it the best I can. I will say that it became complicated because as time went on, these the, the lords of these estates could own multiple estates and, and vassals could be tenants of multiple parcels of land. And so this sworn loyalty gets a little bit confused, right? Trying to figure out who really is a, is a lord to who or to whom. <laughs> but there's that general idea that the ruling class is who owns everything and they kind of just give others permission to live there and to work there as long as it all bubbles up to the top. So I'm really glad that we're discussing this because I feel like you see all the time people talking about how like, oh, we are headed back to feudalism or like feudalism 2.0, here we come. And so I'm, I'm curious, what are, what do you see as being sort of the differences between what feudalism actually was and the situation that we find ourselves trending towards? Would you call it feudalism or would you say it's not quite the same? I would say it's not quite the same, mostly because feudalism itself it falls under that pretty strict definition. I mean, there's different definitions, but at least there's parameters here. I mean, we're talking about this specific hierarchy, this social class that existed in medieval times, and it was related to land specifically, and there's terminology around, like I mentioned, there's the lords and the vassals and the fiefs and the serfs, and and so... To say strictly, yeah, we're headed back toward feudalism, I wouldn't say so. However, I think there are definitely some parallels. So while the, the terminology may be different, you, know, you can replace serfs with working class, for example, or, or things like that. We're not in a monarchy, but we're in a corporatocracy. So that type of thing, is there enough of a parallel, you think, to be able to say, like, yeah, this is basically feudalism? Or would there need to be some serious differences? I think it depends on how loose you want to get with your parallels. I mean, you can compare anything to anything, right? You can say, oh, this this salt shaker is like a sunset and you can... <laughs> you know, I've never tried to, I've never tried to make that comparison before. <laughs> right, you can, you can compare anything depending on how loose you want to get. Did you just pull those two things out of nowhere? <laughs> yeah. The mind of Kellen. <laughs> Always thinking about salt shakers and sunsets. <laughs> Thing is... This was specific to land, right? And and like military service and promises of protection. There was like an established monarchy, you know? And, and so you can start to say like, well, this is really like this in our modern day and this is like that. And I don't have a problem with that. But for me personally to say like, yeah, we're headed back to feudalism, not so much. So when you're talking about parallels, you're saying the future could be something like years 2030, you're living in Amazon town where Amazon offers you housing in exchange for your work. In exchange for your 70 hours a week, you get a place to live. They'll provide you with food in the cafeteria. You're swearing loyalty to them. You can't leave the area. Sounds like you're describing the life of a current Amazon employee. <laughs> I know. I'm, well, that's the point, right? Uh, I think that's why some people say this feels a lot like feudalism. It reminds me of um, the book Parable of the Sower. 
talks a lot about what it is, uh, what life is like for those who live in these sort of corporate towns. And in, in that book, it specifically talks about the need for protection, right? Because there's a lot of chaos going on in the world. There's no order. And these corporations are sort of offering in exchange for pretty much all of your time and your energy and your soul will protect you, will feed you, just be loyal to us. But I do appreciate what you're saying. And it is that we just have to be careful what we call it, you know, to be like, we're headed straight towards feudalism again. It's just important to know, to notice and to make note of the nuances and the differences. Yeah. And it's not that there haven't been attempts to draw very clean lines and parallels. You know, some have said like, well, back then you had the clerisy, you had this, this part of the social hierarchy that were the religious, you know, the, the priests that would condemn people and say like what you're doing is no longer allowed and, and enforce certain social norms that way. Some have claimed like, well now instead of this clerisy, we've got like the journalists and the celebrities and the teachers, the entertainers, and they're the ones that are providing the propaganda and the narratives. They're the ones that like will police you and and call you a dissenter if if you don't fall in line with what's politically correct or whatever. Again, I don't know that I buy into that that strong of a parallel. In the end, what does it matter, <laughs> right? Let's just talk about what we're seeing in terms of trends and maybe some things that do relate to feudalism. I'll share one very interesting statistic here. I know you shared a lot of numbers, Corey. One article I found claimed that from 1945 to 1973, the top 1% in the United States captured just 4.9% of total U.S. income growth. It then says in the following two decades, this super rich cohort gobbled up the majority of it. The combined wealth of the richest 400 Americans now exceeds the total wealth of 185 million of their fellow citizens. And in doing a little more research outside of that, I found that the Federal Reserve indicates that as of quarter four of 2021, so just over a year ago, the top 1% of households in the United States held 32.3% of the country's wealth. The bottom 50% held just 2.6% of the country's wealth. So I, I, that's just so wild. Top 1% owns about a third of the country's wealth and the bottom 50% of the population owns just 2.6% of the wealth. It's staggering. And we've talked about that a lot of times that we've seen this K curve. We've seen the wealth gap widen more and more as part of that trend. We're seeing a disappearance of the middle class. And so as you get more of the wealth accumulated at the very top, that gives that then allows those at the top to control much more of what happens in our economy and basically control the lives of those below them on the pyramid. One example that came to mind while I was researching this, Corey, you know that I was involved in a kind of entrepreneurial endeavor. I helped invent a child safety product and we ran a small business. And as, as we worked with manufacturers and created this product and we started selling it online, we were having the hardest time getting these to sell. And it, we were confused by it because people seemed like they wanted it when we would talk to individuals or we, when we would actually get it in front of people, but we were trying to sell it from our own website. 
somebody that was kind of consulting us made the point like, hey, when you want to find something to buy, where do you buy it? And we're like, well, probably on Amazon. Yeah, that's what everyone does. Like, if you want to sell this product at scale, you're going to have to sell it on Amazon, which we were really reluctant to do because Amazon takes a big cut. Any big retailer takes a big cut, right? But, you know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, like 40%, 50%, something really large that we were going to have to give over to Amazon if we were selling it through Amazon. But we felt like we had no other choice. And the truth is, once we did list it on Amazon, yeah, we cut our margins down, but we sold a lot more of them. The business went a lot better. And that's just the natural state of it. Amazon has developed and owns this platform, and they've been so effective at what they do that we all kind of pay homage to Amazon. They get the revenue from those that are selling products on their platform as as a portion of what they produce, similar to if I'm a vassal to a lord who's given me land and I get to produce as much as I can, but I've got to give a certain portion of that to them. Yeah, I think it's a great example. You know, we've had guests in the past who have been trying to sell a book and it's always interesting to ask them, like, where can I find this book? And they're so reluctant, but typically they say you can find it on Amazon and they'll always clarify and be like, you know, I can't sell it on my own site or I can't like Amazon is just the only way for it to be viable. Now, is that because Amazon is a good thing that's making it more viable for you to sell your products? Or is it that Amazon has sucked the life away from the ma and pa shop's ability to sell their own things? I'll let you answer that one for yourself. That's probably a mixture of both. But yeah, it just goes to show that as much as we hate it, (laughs) as much as we despise the billions of dollars that goes into Jeff Bezos' pockets, it often comes down to that being the only choice. And those who aren't in the tech industry might not be familiar with AWS, uh, but it's a branch of Amazon where they have all of these servers, right? And much of a huge portion of the cloud-based softwares that are out there run on AWS. And so even when you think you're getting away from Amazon, you're probably not. But as they they get more money, they can buy up more things and they can continue to branch out more and more. And this is true for any large corporation. I mean, we're just using Amazon as an example. It's one way in which we see that money just continue to funnel upward. The same could be said for, you know, all of these big corporations that are buying up real estate when less and less individuals are able to purchase a home. And so wherever you live, you're probably seeing some big developer come in and build high density housing and then charge as much for rent as most people that are living in a a big single family home in their mortgage. There have been claims that, you know, like we talked about with property, even if you, you have the title to your property, you've got all these restrictions, these building codes are enforced, uh, you know, there's zoning laws that the government can kind of do what they want and can control your use of land. Even if you say like, no, I outright own this land, they still get to call the shots. So yeah, the, the system has been built in such a way that we just progress more and more 
toward those at the top being able to call all the shots in our lives, we end up just kind of being those vassals to them. The modern day technology oligarchs are compared to, are, are called the modern version of the medieval aristocracy. One quote that I saw thrown around multiple times, I, never, I was never able to find who it was attributed to in Silicon Valley. But apparently someone there made the comment that America increasingly resembles feudalism with better marketing. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Maybe it doesn't mirror feudalism perfectly, as you stated, but it's certainly marketed better, even though it's along the same lines. Saying something like, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, for some people, is a great form of marketing. They, they buy into that, right? The truth is, there are certain things I'd rather rent than own. There are so many things I'd rather share than own, right? Neighborhood co-ops, for example, where you all buy into a tool and share it amongst yourselves. Instead of each buying the chainsaw that you'll use once a year, you buy one and get more than enough use out of it between you. But that's not what feudalism is, obviously. That would be like one person in the neighborhood buying the chainsaw or buying several chainsaws and then making everyone else pay to use it and making a ton of money and spreading their empire from there. And we've talked a lot about what this does to the wealth gap, but I think one of the dangers here is just that it leaves us vulnerable. The more dependent we become, the less resilient we are. So if I'm barely making enough money to be able to pay somebody else to live where I live, like right if I'm paying rent and I'm basically paying for a food subscription and I'm paying for, you know, we could say our utilities, our electricity, our water, like we're kind of just on a subscription for those things as well. And so what that means is as those things are outside of our control, the minute they decide to shut that off, we're in big trouble. Or to charge an amount you can't pay, right? Right. Or if something happens to my income and I all of a sudden don't have the revenue stream that I had before to be able to afford those things, you know, if there's supply chain issues, whatever it is, the, the more that I'm just sitting here waiting for somebody above me to be able to trickle that stuff down to me, the less likely I'm going to be able to handle any turbulence. Well, Kellen, I think to end the episode, I'll read a quote from an article directly from the WEF in regards to the idea of you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes, writes Danish MP Ida Aachen. Shopping is a distant memory in the city of 2030, whose inhabitants have cracked clean energy and borrow what they need on demand. It all sounds utopian until she mentions that her every move is tracked, and outside the city live swaths of discontents, the ultimate depiction of a society split in two. Even the WEF has to admit that this type of future feels like a dystopia. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. 
No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.